Welcome to the first episode of High Seas History, a podcast about seafaring throughout history, <laughs> as the name implies. Uh, my name is Evan. This is Colin. Hello. Um, so basically, all I told you is this is a history podcast, right? And I guess that name. is correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, I briefly, part of why I sort of want to do that is that it makes it easier for you to ask questions and like you know, be sort of an audience surrogate for that. So if ever I, like, gloss over something, you know, just interrupt me or whatever, you know? <laughs> I will needle you endlessly as you talk. I'm curious. I want to learn about this. So first, who are we? Why are we doing this? Um, I study history. I'm a history student. i sort of been interested in doing a podcast on it for a while, because it's something I really like talking about, and that's, you know, what a podcast is. So I've sort of been thinking about doing this over the past few months, as maritime history is at sort of a crossroads of, like, my area of study and a lot of my other interests. Um, like, you know, my the areas of history that I really like studying can pretty broadly be described as, like, conflict history and, like, economic and industrial history both of which often like combine when dealing with how people use and control the oceans. Um, though our approach like for this podcast won't just be historical. I'm aiming for a very like interdisciplinary approach that uh, combines history with like engineering, oceanography, anthropology, like a ton of other stuff. Um, Cause I think that is sort of the only way you can approach a lot of history is to like understand a lot of other things that are, that affect the sort of niche thing you're studying. Um, really the right way to approach any history. Yeah. I would say. And like, you know, sort of, it's, it's especially true in maritime history because there's just, there's so many like physical, tangible, like scientific stuff that affects like there, what there are material happening. circumstances that yeah. particularly affect shipbuilding and naval tactics, as opposed to, you know, insurgents with rifles. There's just yeah. a, there's a scale difference that makes you take other things into account. And so I'm definitely going to be talking about some historical theory at some point, as well as some like very complicated stuff, um, like from engineering and like science. But my goal is to make this podcast like very accessible, even to somebody who is hearing about this stuff for the first time. Um, and again, that sort of feeds into why I'm asking you to not prepare for anything. Um, <laughs> no, so, well, not preparing for things is my specialty. So no worries. It's my pleasure. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is, you know, again, partly, I think just I want to make this accessible, but I don't want this podcast to have homework. I don't I think that history can be an incredibly accessible subject when approached the right way. Um, like, I think that history often seems very like dense, especially when you get into talking about theory. Same with like the sort of other like engineering and science and stuff. But I, I don't think that has to be the case. I think it's if you do it the right way. Right. If you've got two fairly knowledgeable people uh, and handsome, I might add, <laughs> uh, you could pretty easily, I think, with the amount of time that we have, put it all into one concise package. Uh, yeah. There are loose ends that are worth not tying up. So let's, with all that 
sort of introductory work done, let's get into the first like topic of this first episode. I thought it's probably a good idea to establish like a baseline. So let's ask, what even is an ocean? What are your <laughs> so yeah, what are your experiences with the ocean? Like my experiences with the ocean? Yeah. Uh, well no seafaring, unfortunately. Um I guess the closest that I've come is fishing, but mm-hmm. more of a mountains guy, personally. Uh I think that that battleship museum in North Carolina is probably the most relevant maritime experience that I have. Uh, what is that? The USS North Carolina. USS North Carolina. Yeah. Right. Yeah, in Wilmington. Yeah. But um, I think you have a much more uh, personal connection with this subject matter. Well, you know, it's interesting because I have never really been out on the ocean, besides, like, I guess, being at the beach. But that's you know very different, um, and sort of. For me, like, I do find seafaring really, like, there, there's something, like, I guess it draws back to, the, like, the mystique, you know, which is, like, you know, something like the whole people drawn to the sea sort of stuff. Like, I guess that yeah. sort of applies to me. But, you know, I think, like, it's the sort of specific way it does is that, like, I guess the way it combines, you know, sort of the way you have to think about the the approach, it, it, it appeals to me in the same way that, like, I find aircraft interesting. And, like, the sort of, like, the way, like, the, like, sort of technical knowledge, like, intersects with, like, the practicalities of, you know, being out there. And, like, you know, I, I you mentioned the USS North Carolina. I really love museum ships. They're, like, some of my favorite, like, types of museums. You know, in a similar way to, like, aircraft museums, I really like. Um, because there's like something very like it's a unique experience to be like on a historic vessel you know and i've been i've now been on quite a few uh obviously the uss north carolina is like one of the closest ones to me um but like i recently went to the the uss wisconsin um up in uh, norfolk i've been to the uss independence and, like, I really, like, like being on museum ships. And, like, I find it really interesting, like, just, like, you know, being there in a, such a historical space, you know? You like, get the sense that so much work was done in those, you know? Yeah, and it it's sort of, it's really interesting. Like, it's sort of like being in a, like, a historic building, but, like, even more so, right? <laughs> I don't know. Right. Um, just because... No, like, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's hard to quantify. Um. So, you know, I guess to bring it back, like, it it might seem sort of like a dumb question to ask what is an ocean, but I'm going to pose another question to you. How many oceans are there? Uh, uh, well, the geographical literature says, what is it, seven, I want to say, but I mean, there's not <laughs> like any question. discernible border you, beside you the line on a map. This is, yeah, this is a trick question. Um. Like, generally, the answer you'll see, like, at least in, in like, sort of Western, like, you know, American, is, like, five, right? The Pacific, Atlantic, Indian, Southern, and Arctic Oceans. But that could be, like, if you, like, live in somewhere else, you might count that differently because another ocean might be important to you. Like, some people might count the Mediterranean, like, or, you know, it's just... It's an impossible question. Or you could also reduce it down to one, since they're all interconnected, apart from like right. like weird exceptions like the, the Caspian Sea. But 
Like the, all the oceans are like connected. They're one body of water. You can, you know, pass through. Like, so it, it's sort of a very fuzzy question. And I think, yeah, it's it's sort of an interesting, you know, question about like how we define these things that. Sort it's of a good, yeah. It's a good jumping off answer. point for the. Yeah. It's a good jumping off point for this kind of discussion um, about, like you said, questions without answers. Yeah, and so uh, while these sort of like counting these oceans is kind of arbitrary, that's not to say that these subdivisions aren't useful. Um, just locating a place as in the ocean is like the most vague you can get in a description of a place that isn't on earth, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and there are definitely differences to these five oceans characters, the Arctic and Southern oceans, for instance, being far colder generally. Um, but these characteristics are usually more trends than like, like something you can characterize about like any specific one place. Um, even the smallest ocean is vast and like very far from homogenous. Like, the Caribbean is a world of difference from the North Sea off the coast of Norway, even though those are both part of the Atlantic. Um, so it's always important to get, like, to talk about these specific local environments that are interested, that are influenced by the surrounding parts of the ocean. Um, so yeah, let's let's like dig into how to talk about these small bits of sea uh, that are on the scale that people and their craft experience. And to start with that. Let's start with latitude and longitude. It's you may have heard of it. It's I always the, get them mixed up. Yeah, I, I will actually get into that. It's the coordinate system you use when talking about where you are, are on Earth. Um, you know, it's used on land too, but on at sea, it's really useful because there aren't really landmarks. Um, it's hard to say I'm, you know, I'm near this place when it's just an expanse of water. You need to have some right. sort of Thing that you're telling somebody else well let me rephrase that you have to describe your position relative to something and in this case it's relative to the earth sorry about that that's my bird she yeah is very excited though i do think having a parrot squawking in the background is nice atmosphere for a maritime podcast well so, she's on a podcast we'll for, for her first time <laughs> she's probably very excited mm -hmm. um but yeah so when you're using latin, latin longitude you're describing your location relative to the spherical grid system that's standardized so everybody knows what you're talking about. Um, so for longitude, basically it's 360, 360 lines, um, the same 360 that are degrees on a circle, radiating equally spaced, running from the North Pole to the South Pole where they all reconverge. Um, the prime meridian is the zero line for uh, longitude so uh, and incidentally 0 and 360 are the same line um, and conventionally we describe it as if you move one degree of longitude west from the prime meridian you say you're one degree west if you do the same heading east you would say you're one degree east does that all make sense all makes sense so far mm -hmm. um, yeah so and each degree of latitude is subdivided into 60 minutes um, <laughs> which is annoying because it's not decimalized. Um, each minute is divided <laughs> into 60 seconds. At the equator, the place of the maximum separation between lines of longitude before they begin to reconverge 
because that's just how lines work on the circle. One minute of longitude is about 1.855 kilometers or 1.153 miles. This is what used to define a nautical mile and like the knot as a unit of speed. Um, like that is that is the origin of that uh, like measurement. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's what that's why you use knots on boats um, is because longitude latitude and longitude is a lot more useful on a boat uh, when you need to know where you are. And um, you mentioned that it changes obviously because of uh, yeah. how the lines converge closer to the poles. Right. Exactly. Um, one second of longitude will put you at most 100 feet or 30 meters from where you want to be um, at its most, at its max, at the maximum. Um, and basically the reason that the distance changes between these lines is basically just a product of how straight lines work on a circle. Um, they're like these big geodesic lines and they, they, they're, seemingly like go in opposite directions it, it, it's hard to, basically it's just geometry um yeah and latitude is how to tell how far north or south from the equator you are um along a particular line of longitude uh so from zero at the equator also side note um the the way i remember the difference between latitude and longitude um is that latitude could be used like the rungs of a ladder on a globe. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that one. Yeah, that's that's the trick I use. Um, and latitude is actually fairly easy to measure um, if you know the date and you can measure the angle of the sun at noon, um, basically because um, that will tell you how far you are from the equator uh, because... <laughs> I think that we might have to do a whole episode on celestial navigation at some point, but basically um, this works for the same reason that seasons happen. Uh, places further from the equator have longer nights and the sun is at a lower angle in the horizon um, and longer days in summer. The sun is at a higher angle. That's sort of how you can tell. Right. Also, another quick tangent. The Arctic Circle is the latitude above which the sun will stay below the horizon for at least a full day on a, on um, either the sol on either the solstices and the uh, tropics uh, is a band of latitudes from about twenty three and a bit degrees north and south of the equator where the sun can be literally ninety degrees overhead and they receive more sunlight so are you know a lot warmer <laughs> right. Um, um, to measure longitude is a lot harder because it requires you to know precisely what time it is somewhere with a known uh, longitude and based on the time there and where the sun currently is along its current path where you are. Uh, so you need to know, you know, the date and latitude where uh, compared to some uh, to compare to some charts. Um, astronomical noon is about an hour different every 15 degrees of longitude. So a little math. Um, can give you the difference between you and your known point. Does that make sense? Yes, you need a known point, like you said, some yeah. some other relative point of reference. Without right. that, you can't independently determine your latitude. latitude. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but you can with your latitude, right, by measuring the angle of the sun. Yep. 
Um, this can also basically it's because the Earth rotates, but it, like the direction the Earth rotates is in line with latitude. You know, is the direction that you have to measure longitude. So the sun right. isn't like in some consistent direction. Um, yeah. So this uh, this can also be done with stars, so not just the sun. So this is like a, a 24-hour method of navigation. Um, though I always wondered how that chart, would work. Yeah, star charts are a lot more, there's just like a lot more measurement you have to do to be sure that this is the star you're looking at. Um, but yeah, we may want to do a whole episode on like the history of celestial navigation um, at some point. But uh, today it's only really ever taught as a backup to GPS or other methods, if at all. Um, for this podcast, knowing where something is, is not like exactly where something is, is not usually super relevant. Um, so this baseline understanding of latitude and longitude should be plenty. Um, yeah. Though again, we might do an episode again at some point. It's definitely super interesting, particularly the history of like how it evolved over time. Oh, I bet that is interesting. Um, so yeah, now we know the basics of like telling where we are. Uh, let's look at sort of the, the sort of environment around us. Um, first of all, salt. <laughs> the ocean is full <laughs> of it. Uh, scientific, uh, specifically, it's sodium chloride. Um, it's the same salt we put on our foods. It's very tasty, um, as I'm sure y'all are familiar with. Um, and it's, it's what stings your eyes in seawater. Um, and the saltiness of seawater is what sets it, is certainly one thing that sets it apart from lakes and streams. Um, so when water evaporates, it leaves any salt and a lot of other stuff behind. Um, so rainwater and precipitation is salt free. Um, so, you know, rain is the source of water for lakes and streams. So it, it can't have salt in it basically. Um, and, uh, the salt in seawater poses some extra complications for oceanic travel. Uh, number one, you can't drink it. Um, you know, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink and all that. It um, actually dehydrates you faster than if you had not drunk it. Um, basically because, like, to remove the amount of salt that is present in, like, seawater, uh, you like, your body needs to, like, release more water than it took in. So you'll end up losing more water than you gain from drinking a given amount of seawater. Um, so you have to, when traveling the ocean, you have to carry enough water with you or uh, in more recent times, distill fresh water from salt water, which is possible, but obviously a lot more complicated. Um, yeah, then there is salt's effect on metal. It's like basically corrosive. Salt water uh, is very corrosive <laughs> and without efforts, it can like be seriously harmful to like a metal hulled vessel or any like metal fittings on tools or whatever. Uh, like causes rust and like this can like weaken the hull or you know obviously any exposed metal <laughs> i read somewhere that salinity is higher near the equator because of the higher water evaporation uh yeah. is that something that needs to be taken into account by regional navies it if you are like basically there are there are definitely some bodies of water that are definitely more salty and unless it's like like the Dead Sea, uh, or not the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea is also very salty because it's a landlock. So 
like it just doesn't have anywhere to disperse but the red sea uh as a, for example is a place where uh there's like a lot of water evaporation and less um like fresh water inflow and it, it is like significant like substantially more salty but generally after a certain point um it, it 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 really depends on the specific vessel and like what if you want to like take more corrosive prevention measures if you're going into a a particularly particularly like saltier area um but generally speaking it 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 te- the the way corrosion prevention works is basically you're increasing the amount of maintenance time so you might have to do more maintenance afterwards um but you're probably not necessarily going to make any like specific preparations uh, outside maybe doing some like maintenance beforehand and then doing more later. Um, it's so, more of a preventative than a curative yeah, thing that people uh, do. I okay, mean, interesting. Thank you. Briefly get into it. They're uh, on like modern vessels. Uh, they use these things called sacrificial anodes, which are basically um, these like little bricks of metal on the side of a ship that are a metal that is more vulnerable to corrosion than the rest of the hull. Um, And basically what you do is that the corrosion basically happens on these blocks that are easily replaceable. um, And so they, they need to be replaced over time. So if you're going into, if you're going to be operating in a, a saltier area, it might mean you have to replace these bricks more frequently. Um, but it, you probably wouldn't necessarily need to take that much more, like anything more. You, you probably wouldn't have to do anything different. You just might have to do more work. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah. Sacrificial anodes. Sounds yeah. like something out of Warhammer. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. And sort of like you, you mentioned the equator being like warmer. Uh, let's talk about temperature. Um, it's definitely very much affected by latitude. You know, uh, because the more sunlight you receive, the more consistent sunlight, uh, the the warmer the water is. Um, seasons can also have an impact on temperature, and the temperature of the water and air doesn't just affect how nice it is to be on deck, though. Um, temperature and differences in heat energy is what drives weather systems and creates storms that can obviously be a serious threat to an oceanic vessel um, from hurricanes from hurricanes and their high winds and rain to blizzards causing ice buildup. Um, if something goes wrong and you end up in the water, water temperature is like one of the like defining like survival metrics. Um, basically like the colder the water is like the less time you have before somebody needs to get to you to help you. Uh, because in cold water without equipment, you may only have like a couple of minutes before hypothermia sets in and you basically drown because you pass out. Um, that's why stuff like survival suits like uh, that has like now modern equipment is like incredibly important to like cold water survival. Um, yeah. Um, the latitude isn't the only factor when talking about temperature, uh, like currents are like a major like basically because water can retains temperature more like it's a better it, it has it holds a more heat energy so it stays it takes more heat energy to change its temperature um currents can like transfer like warmer water further north or colder water further south and these 
uh, these ocean currents form these big circular gyres uh, that play a major role in like global and local climates. Uh, they're obviously very important to marine life as well as for people who live or work on or near them. Um, I know uh, where I live in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you basically can't swim at all and without yeah. a wetsuit anytime because of the, uh, I want to say like it's the subarctic polar gyre or something yeah. like that that's brushing cold water against the coast from Alaska. Mm-hmm. Whereas, Whereas at the yeah. same at the same latitude on the east, on the coast, east coast it's quite warm gulf stream yeah right which brings up um yeah so like again that that's like a major a major factor in like you know see like the climate of like the like area even for people on land next to where this is ha- next to where these big ocean currents are um yeah and sort of uh, we briefly mentioned storms but like storms and like bad weather more generally um and like they're a major part of life on the ship um the specific character of storms is very closely tied to how and when they form so we're like as storms come up later in the show we're probably going to talk more specifically about like the specifics of that particular storm or the particular storms in a region um because it's sort of hard to generalize um but generally like but if we have to (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, visibility is an, a, a major thing that goes down, especially in a confined space or near other ships. Uh, structural damage from waves, potentially losing control of the vessel, uh, like what direction you're actually going. Um, and of course, water ves- water getting in from the top of the vessel, you know, like from like either waves that get very high, uh, rain, or even like the list, which is like when the vessel like tilts to like the side. Um, you, you basically, yeah, storms are basically a major opportunity to, for water to get around the walls of your vessel. Right. Um, and that sort of brings us on to wind, uh, wind, um, uh, whether it's part of a storm or not is like another one of these big sort of like things about sea travel. <laughs> if that, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Obviously, there's the sort of, like, first-order effects, like, on, like, a sail or, like, the side of the ship itself, uh, which, you know, obviously affects maneuvering. Um, For a long time, it it was, like, the principal source of propulsion. And we will, you know, talk about this a lot more in later later episodes when we're talking more specifically about sailing uh, and sailing ships. Uh, But modern ships, um, especially, like, large, flat-sided ones, like a cruise ship, for example... Can be pushed around by the wind so you it still has to be taken into account uh to keep the ship moving where you want it to um yeah especially like again open sea or near other ships or when in port um incidentally i if you're listening to this podcast you may have heard of the ever given that blocked the suez canal like i think that was last year now yeah um and one of the one of the things that might have been a cause for that was a sudden wind a a sudden gust of wind um i'd never thought about that yeah but like Like, the broad side of one of these modern oh they're shipping vessels is is bigger than it's bigger than any sail yeah Mm -hmm. 
yeah, like you so, said, those huge flat walls. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, wind can also get quite a bit faster over open water, like simply just due to the lack of stuff in the way. Right, there's um, no terrain features to block it or slow yeah, it down or redirect how, it. Like, when you're higher up, the wind can get a lot, like, you know, get a lot faster and more noticeable. Um, yeah, the distance wind can blow over open water, uh, this is called fetch, in addition to giving the wind an unobstructed path, uh, also gives the wind a huge surface area uh, to act on, with basically the wind transferring energy to the surface of the water, creating ripples that then progress into surface waves that can actually like propagate way further outside the windy area. This is usually referred to as swell. Um, so yeah, waves, <laughs> they're probably what you think of when you hear high seas. <laughs> and, you know, with good reason. <laughs> um, you know, the, the constant motion uh, like is just like a major factor of just simply existing. Like the experience being out at sea is like constantly affected by that. Um, basically all ocean waves are these aforementioned wind waves. Uh, some exceptions are tsunamis caused by earthquake. Um, but weirdly, those don't usually impact ocean-going vessels that much. <laughs> um, um, and these these wind waves, though, they're not... They're, like, a pretty serious thing. <laughs> um, th there's the obvious threat of waves getting big enough to, like, swamp a vessel. You know, like, basically just, like, getting over it and, like, filling it with water. Uh, but their constant impact on a vessel is, like, a major, like, structural stressor. Uh, that like you have to take into account when designing for when designing a vessel. Um, yeah, the most like obvious way to talk about a wave is like its height, uh, measured usually from trough to crest, i.e., the lowest point to the highest point. Um, but also another sort of like something you might not think of that is also very important is period, the time between each crest. Um, a five-foot change in height is very different over one second or ten. Um, this sort of is also correlated to, like, wave speed and length. Um, but those are sort of secondary aspects to this. Um, but yeah. So, like, now there is a problem, though. Uh, because in the actual oceans, waves aren't, like, an ideal sine wave. That you would see like in like those like diagrams um they're made up of a bunch of overlapping waves that can interfere constructively and destructively meaning every actual crest is different from the last um which is where we have to reach for fucking statistics so oh great yeah this is this is actually like not that bad all things considered um so the wave waves are science are considered sort of scientifically is with something called significant wave height, which is the average of the which is the average height of the top third biggest waves recorded in a period of time. Um, basically, this is sort of a measure of the height of the waves you mostly have to worry about, um, because basically it's sort of assumed that you're a vessel that can handle the significant wave height is going to easily be able to handle the the smaller third of waves, but a vessel that may only be able to 
handle these the smaller amount of waves might not be able to handle th these bigger waves. Um, so like these these bigger waves are rarer, but you will definitely see them. So if your vessel isn't like isn't like capable of handling those like bigger waves that then you just shouldn't go out. Um, sort of related to this is sea state, which basically breaks down sea conditions uh, as like ranges from zero to nine that a vessel should be rated up to in order to operate safely in the conditions. Um, this is sort of like this as well as significant wave height is like the modern way we talk about this, but it's still like, I think important to consider when going back further in history. Um, because even though we now understand this a lot more like quantitatively, um, it can still be helpful to think about this as like to compare with how things were thought of at the time where it was sort of more of an art than a science. Um, yeah. So does that seem like weird where you, you like basically just ignore the bottom third or like, does that, does that sort of like make sense to you? No, that makes perfect sense to yeah. me. I mean, when you're fighting the waves with absolutely nothing to do, but like, fight the waves that makes perfect sense like if your if your vessel is obviously handling them then it makes sense to only focus on the more dangerous ones and measure those yeah that's um, the only like variable that has any bearing on the situation in any immediate capacity yeah. but no like i said period also does matter um because so a, a huge wave like if you have like a 50 foot wave if like that sounds crazy right but if you imagine yeah. that change like taking place over like, you know, like an hour, then oh, that's not so bad. You're basically like there's very little rate of change to that height. So period is also very important to that too, um, because if a, if you have a fifty foot wave that suddenly then drops to, you know, that suddenly drops to the trough like you know three seconds later, that's very different than what right. The, the, your, yeah. Um, so now, as this is a blatant segue, when do waves break? <laughs> you know, the thing where they sort of collapse into a tumbling mess or maybe form like a nice tube to surf into. Um, you want, have How guesses? do waves break? I mean, I imagine the answer has something to do with physics and water. Basically, but I wouldn't know beyond it's that. Shallow. So um, <laughs> this is like a like a perfect example of like like how depth affects things uh, I, especially affects things more than whether your boat is touching the ground or not um sort of more specifically basically the sort of waves like gets when the water gets too shallow the the sort of mass of the water below it can't support it anymore so it just sort of collapses uh, that's sort of specifically what happens when waves breaks. That's a very like basic explanation. But interesting. Um, yeah, to get back to depth, like currents obviously near shore uh, are affected by the undersea topology and can get very complicated. So like the, like the physical topology again like affects the movement of the water and the sea life native to a region too. Um, which again. Uh, like sea life is like something we will certainly be touching on, but it is like sort of secondary to a lot of things, but it definitely does play a major impact. Um, especially mm -hmm. when talking about like fishing or 
like the people living near shore. Um, though, generally speaking, shore conditions are like even harder to generalize. Um, local knowledge and familiarity uh, with like the local shallows and their impact is like one of the big reasons large ships today rely on the local pilot to guide them into port. Um, I didn't and, know which that. Just sort of like speaks to like how local this knowledge is. Um, and yeah, the, the ocean floor being closer does provide a lot of opportunity, like a lot more opportunities for you to hit it. Um, it also provides a, a certain degree of safety compared to the open ocean. First of all, waves can't get as large due to interference with the sea floor and the shoreline itself. Um, the shore can also obviously protect you from winds if you're on the leeward as opposed to the windward side. Basically, this means like the op leeward basically means the opposite side the wind is blowing from. Right. Basically, it provides shelter. Um, additionally, simply being close to shore means it's easier for help to arrive or for you to get onto dry land in an emergency. Um, you know, like one of one of the best things to do in an emergency onto ship is to simply leave. <laughs> It's the, the, the old saying, if it sucks, hit the bricks, uh, simply leave. Uh, and that, that's, <laughs> and the thing that complicates that is when you're at, when you're in the open ocean, leave to where, uh, right. if you're near the shore, there's the way you leave. Uh, yeah. Another, uh, wet effect, uh, only noticeable near shore is the tide, um, where the gravity of the moon and to a lesser extent, the sun uh, basically uh, causes to change causes the sea height to change relative to ground uh, by a couple meters over the course of a day. Though again, the la the exact height varies location to location. Um, additionally, when the sun and mood uh, are t are basically at certain positions relative to each other, like perfectly in line or ninety degrees opposite, they can stack up to create a super tide or a very weak tide where the change is just like very minimal um this change is very slow so like over the course of a couple hours so it, it usually doesn't affect like vessels as much especially when they're at sea and there's no real point of reference to the to the surface even changing um but it definitely does affect like shore infrastructure so like how boats like like the docks and like all that stuff, and and the people living near the shore, uh, you you have to take into account that the sea is not like a consistent like zero point, right? Um, yeah. So like, I, I, so that sort of covers like the big sort of areas that I wanted to cover, um, in terms of like the basic stuff that like will be playing a part in almost every you know episode going forward. Um, but sort of, I want to end on a bit of a story. Uh, my grandparents recently moved to a town uh, on the shore of Lake Michigan. And I was visiting them that summer. Me and my grandfather were, were watching the lake one day. <laughs> and it was really nice out, um, but it was very windy. And he commented on how being at the lake was a lot more like being at a beach than a lake with how rough it was out in the water. Um, and he had been telling some friends of his from back where they had lived before in Florida um, that they were in kind of disbelief that a lake could look like that. And then he said something along the lines of, um, yeah, I just don't think they get how huge Lake Michigan is. Uh, we used to... This is oh, it's massive. 
we used to have a house up on Lake Winnipesaukee. Uh, this was decades ago when they lived in New Hampshire. Um, and then he said, and that was a pretty big lake, and it was nothing like this. Lake Michigan must be like five times as big. <laughs> and that sort of like stood out to me. Not like I would just want to like dunk on my grandpa, but I had to look at <laughs> Lake Winnipesaukee is like 71 square miles. So that's like, uh, or like 180 square kilometers, which is like a pretty decently sized lake. It's the largest lake in New Hampshire. Um, you know, <laughs> Lake Michigan is 22,404 square miles. <laughs> Holy shit. Or 58,000, uh, yeah, 58,030 square, uh, square kilometers. Yeah, there's just a scale difference with bodies yeah. of water that it's... you can't parse like you can on land. Like you said, there's no point of reference, there's no landmarks, but yeah. also the floor level is constantly shifting. Yeah, and that's there's... 305 and a half times larger than lake winnipesaukee and lake michigan is still a lake like again this isn't like <laughs> dunk on my grandpa for or anyone else for not knowing how big the lake is like it's it's about like how hard it is to grasp the vastness of the ocean or even just this large lake and, and like this sort of was also applies to the, the the whole earth you know like it's just like this unfathomably huge um yeah so i guess uh thank you for listening to our first episode uh uh next time we'll give a crash course on the vehicles that people use to somehow tr surmount these like incomprehensibly vast oceans because as wild as it is to imagine the scales that these people were these these people were venturing into since before written history um they they were actually conquering him. So next time we get to grips with the tools they use to do that. Uh, our intro oh. song is Beneath the Black Flag by Miracle of Sound. Go check out his stuff. He lets uh, people use his music for free and podcasts and streaming and stuff. So the least we can do is send y'all his way. Uh, there's a link in the description to take you straight there. So see y'all next time.